more than 50 years, we've been told that the Cuba Missile Crisis of 1962 was the closest we've ever come to nuclear war, and that the American President, Jack Kennedy, brilliantly outfoxed the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and defused the danger. But evidence has been piling up that suggests something very different. It shows that the Cuba crisis was a disaster for Kennedy. And what we now know is that although it was the closest we've ever come to nuclear war, the responsibility for that lies not with Khrushchev, but fairly and squarely with Kennedy. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. It was Tuesday, 15th of October, 1962. Quarter to nine in the morning, the 45-year-old President John Jack Kennedy was still in bed. I was probably surprised to see his national security adviser, McGeorge Bundy, turn up in his bedroom with his morning papers. Jack and Mac had been old schoolmates, but the President wasn't usually woken up by his national security adviser. But then, there was nothing usual about the papers Mac Bundy had under his arm. What he brought were blurry photographs taken by an American spy plane that had flown over Cuba a couple of days before. Bundy's experts had been poring urgently over the photographs, and what they'd spotted was worth waking the president up for. There, among the sparse palms of Pinar del Rio on the island of Cuba, just 90 miles from the Florida Keys, were the unmistakable outlines of launch sites for Soviet R-12 rockets. Now, Bundy's intelligence specialists knew all about R-12s, because a Russian spy had secretly copied the manuals for the missiles in Moscow. His intelligence, codenamed Ironbark, showed that R-12s could travel a thousand miles and were designed to carry nuclear warheads. What Bundy had woken the president up to tell him was that if the missiles were launched from Cuba, his bedroom could be obliterated within 13 minutes. As soon as Bundy was out of the way, Kennedy called his younger brother, Bobby. He was just 32 but he was his attorney general. Oh, shit, shit, said Bobby. Those sons of bitches, Russians. Cuban Missile Crisis had begun. By 11.15 that day, Jack had pulled together a team of his top men and security advisers. He or Bobby would meet them every day, sometimes several times a day for the next 13 days. They've gone down in history as Kennedy's executive committee, XCOM for short. The usual story goes that XCOM discussed plans to invade or bomb Cuba. As tension mounted, the risk of nuclear war was overwhelming. In the end, we're told, the Kennedys came up with a brilliant plan. The American Navy would circle the island and prevent any more missiles getting through from Russia. At the last minute, the story continues, the Russian ships turned round. We're eyeball to eyeball. Secretary of State Dean Rusk is famously supposed to have muttered. And I think the other fellow just blinked. But the crisis wasn't over. Three days later, an American spy plane flying over Cuba was shot down. Kennedy's Defence Secretary, Robert McNamara, tells how he left the White House that day, Saturday the 27th of October, and watched a glorious sunset over the Potomac River. He wondered whether he would live to see another. 
but the Kennedys held their nerve, and the usual story goes the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev caved in. He agreed to remove his missiles. It's gone down as a textbook example of diffusing a crisis using calm, firm diplomacy and minimal force. The Kennedys emerge as ice-cool, all-American heroes who save the world. The problem is that over the years since then, a vast amount of evidence has turned up that tells us that this was pretty much the opposite of what happened in October 1962. The usual story of the Cuba Missile Crisis is that the Kennedys brilliantly faced down Nikita Khrushchev and saved the world from nuclear war. But all manner of evidence now tells us that the reality was not like that. The first thing historians need to do is to understand what kind of story they're being told. Call it tamping down the evidence? Where exactly did the usual story we're told come from? In this case, it's very simple. The usual narrative, repeated for decades to historians and filmmakers by the American politicians who were involved, tallies all too closely with the narrative Kennedy himself deliberately created within days of the crisis. It appeared in the 8th of December issue of the Saturday Morning Post in an article apparently written by an old friend of Kennedy's, Charlie Bartlett, but in fact secretly approved and amended by Kennedy himself. We have a copy of the original newspaper right here in the History Café, and we'll take a closer look at the article later. The story Kennedy got reported in the Saturday Morning Post was fleshed out by one of his aides, Arthur Schlesinger, in his biography of the president written in 1965. Then it was taken up by Jack Kennedy's brother, Bobby, in his book, 13 Days, which he'd almost completed when he was assassinated in 1968. The book was finished by another close Kennedy friend, Ted Sorensen, and has become the central text of most popular modern accounts. We'll come back to the creation of this extraordinary myth in the final podcast of this series. But the first simple conclusion we can already reach is that the usual account we have of the Cuba Missile Crisis is entirely created by the Kennedys and their close friends and aides. It's a piece of propaganda. It may be true in part, but much of it certainly isn't. As historians, we should be extremely careful about believing a single word of it. Instead, we have to pour the stale old coffee away, take some fresh beans and start again, slowly. We need to take time to reconsider the evidence we're using. Fortunately, we now have a great deal of it. Jack and Bobby Kennedy secretly taped the meetings of Kennedy's experts, XCOM, and those tapes have now become public. So we know exactly what was being said behind closed doors. And for some years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, historians were also able to open Khrushchev's files and other archives from the communist era, so that we can begin at last to see this crisis from a different angle. Khrushchev incidentally died in disgrace and was never rehabilitated by the Soviet communists, so we're not just getting a one-sided Soviet version from the Moscow documents. Meanwhile, for some years from 1987, a remarkable series of conferences brought together historians and participants from the crisis, not just presidential advisers, but men who were on the ground, out at sea, even under the sea in submarines. The conferences were initially organised by American historians, but they soon drew in Russians and Cubans too, and met not only in the States, but also in Moscow and Havana. And what all this new evidence adds up to is a simple conclusion, right from the start, the Kennedys lied about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Which is why we have to start from scratch. We have to re-examine the basic assumptions. So let's take the most fundamental assumption of the lot, one on which the whole traditional story depends. We've always been led to believe that Khrushchev put nuclear missiles on Cuba in October 1962 in order to threaten the United States with nuclear destruction. 
The astonishing thing is that when we take into account what we now know, it no longer looks like that's true. So the Kennedys lied about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and most of the story we've believed ever since is a fabrication, a piece of propaganda. We need to re-examine the most basic elements of the story. And the most basic of those elements is that the Soviets put nuclear missiles on Cuba in order to threaten the Americans with nuclear destruction. On the face of it, of course, it looks as though that makes complete sense. Soviets had more intermediate-range rockets and very few long-range ones but the intermediate ones were too small to cross the Atlantic. Cuba's just 90 miles from Key West, the southernmost island off of Florida. So by putting them on Cuba, Khrushchev could bring his intermediate rockets to bear on the United States. Simple. On day one of the crisis, the security advisor Mac George Bundy told XCOM that Khrushchev's generals must have been telling him that Cuba presented him with a golden opportunity to add to his strategic capability. From Cuba, as Kennedy realised in his bedroom, Soviet intermediate R-12 missiles could just about reach Washington. More seriously, two days later, on the 18th of October, Mac Bundy had to report to Kennedy that the Soviets were constructing launch sites for larger R-14 rockets. These were still intermediate missiles, but from Cuba, they were big enough to hit almost every city in America. By putting intermediate missiles on Cuba, the Soviets could therefore much more than double the number of their nuclear warheads that could reach the United States. As Bobby Kennedy put it, within a few minutes, 80 million Americans would be dead. It sounds so obvious. By putting intermediate rockets on Cuba, Khrushchev was materially changing the strategic balance. But it doesn't fit the most basic strategic maths of the situation. And we now know that it's not what the Kennedys or their advisers thought at the time. Or at least not by the end of day two. Before XCOM's meeting on the morning of day three, President Kennedy was given a briefing memo. We have a facsimile of it right here. It's in Charles Kenny's biography of Kennedy, which reproduces many documents from the Kennedy Presidential Library. The memo had been drawn up by Theodore Sorensen, Kennedy's speechwriter and close friend, who would later complete Bobby Kennedy's book on the crisis. At the time, he was special advisor to the president, and in his memo on day three, Sorensen summed up XCOM thinking so far. He wrote, It is generally agreed that these missiles do not significantly alter the balance of power. They do not significantly increase the potential megatonnage capable of being unleashed on American soil. What Kennedy's famously sharp advisers, sometimes known as his Harvards, and his security analysts had concluded was that by moving intermediate missiles to Cuba, Khrushchev hadn't mounted any significant new threat to the United States. As Roswell Gilpatrick, Deputy Secretary of Defence, put it, the military equation has not altered. Kennedy's Defence Secretary, Robert McNamara, said the same, both at the time and later. The assumption that the strategic nuclear balance mattered in any way was wrong. Now, Kennedy's military chiefs always disagreed, but we should be careful about believing what they said, since for months they'd been looking for an excuse to invade Cuba. Curtis LeMay, head of the US Air Force, was loudly and in complete seriousness advocating a nuclear first strike. Cooler and cleverer heads around the table at XCOM worked out straight away that a few more warheads on Cuba made no difference. How can that be? Well, it 
It's a matter of mathematics. If we throw out the old Kennedy propaganda version of the Cuban Missile Crisis and look at what the experts said at the time, we quickly discover that a few Soviet missiles on Cuba made no real difference to the nuclear threat faced by the states. Back in August 1960, two years before the Cuban Missile Crisis, two things had suddenly revolutionised American intelligence. The first was that Oleg Penkovsky, a colonel in Soviet military intelligence, had made secret contact with British and American intelligence. The material he secretly leaked was codenamed Ironbark. By October 1962, Penkovsky had supplied over 5,000 pages of secret Soviet military documents. The second revolutionary change was that an American Corona rocket had at last made it into orbit at the 13th attempt. Within weeks, it was sending back low-resolution photographs of vast areas of the Soviet Union. I put all this together, and what Kennedy's intelligence experts knew by October 1962 was that the Soviet missile programme was, in Penkovsky's own words, practically non-existent. The Soviets had hardly any nuclear missiles. Once it was clear that the Soviets had moved some of their small stock of intermediate missiles to Cuba, one of the experts at the State Department, Raymond Gartoff, did a calculation of what a worst-case scenario would look like. And this is it. Let's say that without warning... The Soviets launched all of their intercontinental ballistic missiles from Soviet territory and say that by some extraordinary miracle, every one of them hit American military targets spot on. In that case, Gartov calculated, the Soviets might perhaps succeed in knocking out 55% of the Americans' nuclear capability. Now add in the intermediate missiles that had just arrived on Cuba and assume, again, that every single one hit its bullseye and destroyed an American military base. In that case, reckoned Gartov, the Americans might, in the very worst of worst cases, the very unlikeliest of all unlikely scenarios, be left with only 15% of their capability. Now that sounds bad, if impossibly unlikely. But here's the important point. Even with only 15% left, Gartov pointed out that the Americans would still have more nuclear warheads capable of striking the Soviet Union than the Soviets had ever had. The Soviet Union would still be completely annihilated. Well, do the math. In those circumstances, only a lunatic in the Kremlin would launch a first nuclear strike in October 1962, and the Harvards in Washington knew that Nikita Khrushchev, whatever his communist beliefs may be, was a wily old soldier and operator. He was no madman. So putting a few missiles on Cuba didn't make any significant difference to the nuclear balance of power. But you can hear Kennedy apologists protesting, and you can still watch men like Bob McNamara, Kennedy's security advisor, on old TV documentaries, saying, Surely the point is that the missiles on Cuba were much closer than Soviet missiles in the Ukraine. They could reach the States much more. Well, quickly. There would be no time to, to do, well, to do, to do anything. Kennedy's staffers went on saying exactly that for decades afterwards. But it's just a smokescreen. If Khrushchev had launched an intercontinental ballistic missile from the Ukraine, Washington would have had at most about 30-30 minutes warning. If he'd launched an intermediate missile from Cuba, there would have been about 13 minutes. Now we just need to look around a bit and ask some questions. What would the Americans have done in those precious extra 17 minutes? Reagan's largely mythical Star Wars defence system was decades away. In 1962, they couldn't have shot the Soviet missiles down, 
So would they perhaps have used the 17 minutes to huddle into nuclear shelters? The answer is no, because there weren't any, or hardly any. In a book that every student of the Cuba Missile Crisis ought to read, historian Alice George has shown how successive American administrations had calculated that nuclear shelters would be a waste of money. There would never be time to reach them. By October 1962, there were no shelters for ordinary citizens in New York, Oklahoma, Seattle or many other cities. There was just one in the whole state of Indiana. Just a few weeks before the crisis, on the 23rd of August 1962, a secret report had concluded that even if the nuclear shelter programme were significantly boosted, 145 out of 185 million Americans would still die, either immediately or in the days afterwards as law and order collapsed. 17 minutes more or less made no difference whatsoever. Anyway, Secretary for Defence McNamara said... Even one missile getting through would be the worst catastrophe in the history of this country. Jack Kennedy drew the only conclusion an intelligent observer could draw. It doesn't make any difference if you get blown up by a missile flying from the Soviet Union or one that was 90 miles away. By the end of day two, everyone in the room during the meetings of XCOM, except perhaps the top military brass, knew it. As Sorensen's memo stated bluntly, these missiles do not significantly alter the balance of power. They do not significantly increase the potential megatonnage capable of being unleashed on American soil. The missiles now on Cuba were irrelevant to the nuclear threat facing Americans. So, we're back to asking the most basic questions about the Cuba Missile Crisis. If we're going to understand what was going on, we need to know why on earth the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev put missiles on Cuba if they didn't add anything significant to his nuclear capability. And perhaps more significantly, why on earth US President Jack Kennedy took them so seriously? Why did Nikita Khrushchev put missiles on Cuba? And why did Jack Kennedy take them so seriously? These turn out to be much more complex and significant questions than we had first thought. This is the point at which we need to widen our inquiry. We call it looking round the room. Let's see who else is involved in this story besides Kennedy and XCOM. Let's draw up some more chairs, broaden the conversation. Well, obviously, the first person we need to know more about is the Soviet Premier in 1962, Nikita Khrushchev. And for Khrushchev, the obvious place to start is a book by Alexander Fasenko and Timothy Naftali called Khrushchev's Cold War. Now, this American-Russian team has also produced the best book so far on the missile crisis. They used both American and Soviet documents and had access to some Soviet sources that few others have ever seen. Fasenko and Naftali are clear about what they believe Khrushchev's foreign policy objective was from the time he emerged as the Soviet leader in about 1955. What he wanted was peaceful coexistence with the West. It was a straightforward calculation of economics. The Soviet Union was struggling to feed and house its population, let alone compete in an expensive nuclear arms race. If we're forced into doing this, Khrushchev said to his son, Sergei, when they were discussing the nuclear arms race, we'll lose our pants. There was no way the Soviets could win. In a nuclear war, the Soviet Union would be obliterated. In a nuclear arms race, it would be bankrupted. Khrushchev therefore wanted to scale down the superpower Cold War, to agree disarmament, to divert spending from arms to farming. He wanted to invest in his domestic economy and compete with the West, not through weapons, but through economic strength and political ideas. 
The policy made sense. From late 1959, the Soviets had intercontinental missiles that could hit the USA directly, but they had very few. Four, to be exact. But Khrushchev turned down proposals to build many more. It was a risk, leaving the USSR vulnerable if the Americans launched an all-out attack first. But Khrushchev realised that just a few missiles were enough to achieve deterrence, and deterrence was the key concept. You didn't need the capacity to blow the other side up several times over to deter them from ever launching their missiles at you. As McNamara said, if just one got through, it would be enough. Or as Khrushchev characteristically put it, missiles are not cucumbers, you can't eat them, and you don't need more than a certain number. Or as American defence strategists put it, a very few missiles were enough for mutually assured destruction. M-A-D. Mad. Mutually assured destruction meant mutually assured deterrence. Actually, from August 1960, the Soviets probably even had the capacity to launch R-13 nuclear rockets from submarines. The subject's still shrouded in secrecy, and Naftali and Fasenko don't mention it. But it seems that, from the autumn of that year, the Soviets could potentially float unseen down the coast of America and hit targets in the States within just a few minutes. But whether they had submarine-launched missiles or not, one way or another, by August 1960, Khrushchev had all the nuclear weapons he needed. He had enough to threaten the States and deter them from nuclear war. Khrushchev also had help from an unexpected direction. Most Americans were convinced that the Soviets were way ahead of them in the production of nuclear missiles. The press, spotting a good story, whether it was true or not, made big play with the idea. One journalist claimed that while the Americans had only eight intercontinental ballistic missiles capable of hitting the other side, so-called ICBMs, the Soviets had 150. The US military also loudly and enthusiastically encouraged this story of a missile gap, partly out of sensible military caution, but also, of course, because it gave them leverage to bid for bigger and bigger budgets. General Thomas S. Power, head of the Strategic Air Command, claimed that the Russians would soon have 300 ICBMs. So Khrushchev, who as we know in fact only had four, realised he could exploit popular American fears to put pressure on American politicians. Khrushchev's way of pitching for peaceful coexistence was paradoxically to become more aggressive. With a weak economy and comparatively feeble forces, what he needed to do was to make enough noise to get the Americans to take him seriously. According to Fasenko and Naftali, Alongside offering disarmament talks, he therefore created a series of crises, bluffing that he had more missiles than he actually did, ratcheting up world tension, bullying the Americans and their allies in the hope that it would force them to treat him on equal terms and start negotiating. He started creating crises exactly like the Cuba Missile Crisis. The Cuba Missile Crisis fits into a pattern of international crises created by the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev in a bid not to destroy the United States, but to wring concessions from the Americans and their Western allies. In 1956, he successfully threatened to use his almost non-existent nuclear forces to force the British and French back from their attack on the Suez Canal in Egypt. In 1958, he again successfully threatened war to prevent what he thought would be an American attack on Iraq. Encouraged, Khrushchev then turned his attention to his most pressing international problem, Berlin. 
Berlin was an issue left over from the Second World War, and in the course of the 1950s it had been growing steadily more and more urgent for the Soviets. Germany had been sliced into West and East since 1945. The West was democratic capitalist, allied to the Americans and the West. The East was totalitarian, communist, allied to Moscow. But Berlin, the historic capital of Germany, happened to lie deep in Soviet-controlled eastern part of Germany. Rather than choose a new capital for West Germany, the city of Berlin had been divided at the end of the war into east and west segments. West Germany was connected to its faraway bit of West Berlin by a narrow road, rail and canal corridor roughly 100 miles long through Soviet-controlled territory and by a small number of agreed flight paths. The western half of Berlin was under the military protection of Americans, British and French. Now, within the city of Berlin, however, residents moved freely from one side to the other. Of course, that made it easy for spies to slip into Soviet East Germany from West Berlin. Worse for the Soviets, as the Americans and their allies poured money into West Germany, disgruntled citizens, not only from East Germany, but from all over Soviet-controlled Eastern Europe, began making their way to East Berlin. And from there, carrying a few possessions in a small suitcase, they could stroll into West Berlin and so escape through the corridor to a new life in the democratic West. So the situation in Berlin stood for all that was failing in the Soviet East and all that was apparently successful in Western capitalism. Khrushchev described the city as a bone in my throat. He set himself to get the West out of Berlin in whatever way he could. Now Khrushchev's precise demands over Berlin kept on evolving over the months and aren't important here. What matters is that by the 1960s, Berlin had become a very dangerous touch paper in the explosive standoff between the Soviets and the West. Eisenhower, who'd been president for much of the 50s, however, refused to be goaded by Khrushchev. Like Churchill in 1940, he took a much more cool-headed account of the military situation than most of the people around him. Eisenhower looked closely at intelligence on Khrushchev's domestic economy and worked out that it was in deep trouble. From his many years at the top of the US military, he knew that weapons didn't come cheap and that the only way Khrushchev could solve his domestic problems was by cutting defence spending. What little US intelligence there was had always suggested to Eisenhower's experienced military eye that the Soviets had far fewer missiles than Khrushchev seemed to claim. Eisenhower thought the whole missile gap idea was phony. Even if there ever had been one, it couldn't last long. Khrushchev was bluffing. Anyway, Eisenhower also understood deterrence. He knew about MAD, mutually assured destruction, as he quietly explained at a press conference in February 1960, what you want is enough missiles. Adding more and more missiles would make no difference at all. So Eisenhower more or less ignored Khrushchev's threats and deadlines over Berlin and genially invited him instead to come and visit the States. The long-running battle over Berlin had flared up again in 1961. By then, the stream of escapees from east to west had become an obvious flood and an embarrassment for Khrushchev. He demanded more loudly and more urgently than ever that the West quit Berlin. Now, by this time, Jack Kennedy had become president and his response was to threaten the Soviets with nuclear war. Kennedy even informed NATO he was completely serious. Mark Khrushchev didn't want war, but he was desperate to close the escape route down to the West. So he hastily built a wall all the way around West Berlin. It was a humiliating climb down. The point here is this. When Mac Bundy bought Kennedy the photographs of missile bases on Cuba in October 1962, the new crisis fitted into a steady pattern going back to 1956. Nobody should have been surprised. 
Christoph would create a crisis and then try to use it to get concessions. Perhaps a disarmament agreement. Probably concessions over Berlin before backing off. This was at least the fifth time he'd tried the tactic. And by 1962, the Americans had shown he could successfully be faced down, if not actually ignored. Eisenhower, who as ex-president was in close touch with Kennedy, had always seen through Khrushchev's bluster. And now Kennedy had seen Khrushchev off over Berlin as well, this time with just a show of force. In October 1962, Kennedy was also in a stronger position than Eisenhower had ever been. From August 1960, they'd been receiving Oleg Penkovsky's high-level intelligence from Moscow. They also had the high-resolution satellite photographs that proved conclusively that the missile gap had always been a nonsense. Khrushchev could say what he liked. He could even put a few missiles on Cuba. The Americans knew that they were far, far ahead of the Soviets in the nuclear weapons race. A few more missiles here or there would make no significant difference at all. As Kennedy's briefing papers on day three of the Cuba crisis made clear, and the State Department's calculations confirmed. The simplest course of action was to do what Eisenhower had done before. Do nothing, or very little. In fact, as the same briefing paper at the start of day three made clear, that's exactly what America's European allies would expect Kennedy to do. They'd had Soviet intermediate missiles pointing at them for years. Didn't mean the Soviets were actually ever going to launch the things. Alternatively, as Kennedy's close friend and advisor Ted Sorensen later explained... The president could have looked tough by just setting a limit on the number of acceptable missiles on Cuba, something to match the American-made missiles in Europe, pointing at the Soviets. Either way, Christoph Bluff would have been called. As we shall see, there were also at least two other negotiating gambits Kennedy could also have played right from the start, at least one of which had already been discussed as a contingency plan, and which, as events proved, would have brought the affair quickly to a close. The crisis would have been over almost before it started. But Kennedy chose not to do any of this. Instead, he got his security and military chiefs together and began discussing air raids and invasion. So why, this time, did Kennedy allow another of Khrushchev's made-up, blustering episodes to slide into crisis that very nearly led to world war? For that, we have to understand much more about Kennedy. But before we do that, we also have to look more closely at Cuba, because threatening the Americans over Berlin was not in fact the original reason Khrushchev had begun his military build-up on the island. To get to grips with that, we have to draw another chair up to our table. Khrushchev's first motivation had been to do with a revolutionary young Cuban leader, Fidel Castro. And we'll introduce ourselves to Fidel Castro next time on History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Thank you.